Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network. Today, we'll be interviewing Dr. Konrad Jarosz about his excellent new book, Broken Lives, How Ordinary Germans Experienced the 20th Century, published by Princeton University Press in 2018. Dr. Jarosz, hello, and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to have you this morning. Um, so, we always like to begin these interviews by having the author tell us a little bit about themselves. Well, that's fairly easy in my case because I was born in Magdeburg in Germany in the summer of 1941 on the very day of the proclamation of the Atlantic Charter. And then I grew up in various places in Germany because my father died in January 1942 in Russia, uh, which I've covered in another book, editing his letters. Uh, and that, of course, meant that my early life was overshadowed by big history because my mother then was a widow and I don't have any siblings. Oh, okay, so that's how you got interested in history. Well, history got interested in me. <laughs> I couldn't escape it. Uh, and, you know, some people of my own age cohort in Europe sort of kind of ignored it and uh, tried to get away from it as much as possible. Uh, I kind of combined these two responses by coming to the United States uh, in order to uh, work here first and then study here. That got me physically away from the places of the Second World War, but made it possible intellectually and emotionally to try to cope with what had gotten on there. Um, where did you study in the United States? Uh, you will laugh, uh, in Laramie, Wyoming, uh, at the University of Wyoming. <laughs> because uh, the sponsor that uh, in those days, in 1960, you still had to have somebody who paid for you, um, was a family friend who was professor of music, organ, uh, playing and composing, composing at the University of mm. Wyoming. Hmm. Is it, is it in- I, have a, I have a BA in American Studies. Oh, okay. Um, and then your PhD is in history. Yes, of course, uh, and I try to do comparative history, uh, and uh, the University of Wisconsin took me into the graduate program and gave me a decent fellowship uh, and decided that I would do first European history and keep the American stuff somewhat in the background, and that's what I did, and during the time that I was in medicine, um, the department was one of the best in the country, not because of me, but because of George Mossy and um, Ted Amaral and uh, Harvey Goldberg on the European side and uh, Michael Petrovich and, and so on and so forth. And so I studied with a bunch of uh, accomplished European historians at and, the University of Wisconsin. And, and what was your dissertation on? Um, that had to do with a public lecture of a very controversial German historian by the name of Fritz Fischer, who had had his uh, transatlantic lecture tour canceled by the German Foreign Office because his book, Griff nach der Weltmacht, Germany's uh, aims in the First World War, um, annoyed many conservative Germans and many of his colleagues. And so some leading American institutions invited him, and he came over and during the summer of 1964 gave a public lecture in Madison, uh, quarreling with a lot of his German colleagues, pulling little scribbled pieces of paper out of his billfold. And I didn't understand a thing about what was going on. But this was the so-called Fisher Controversy. And in order, and it revolved around the outbreak of the First World War. It was clear that Germany had unleashed the Second World War, but the First World War was still questionable whether it was a preventive war on the German side or whether it was a, um, you know, a defensive struggle. And the figure who was in the center of all of these things was the German Chancellor Theobald von Bethmann-Holweg. And so 
um, perhaps, uh, you know, having too much chutzpah, I decided as a dissertation student uh, to do a dissertation of this uh, German chancellor. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, this is... Um... This controversy with Fisher is was a it was a big deal back back in the sixties, um, and it was it's an it was an important question for not just academic Germans but you know ordinary Germans on the street. Um, yeah, it's, yes. Well, it all had to do with national identity and with the question of potential German reunification. If the Germans had been responsible for two world wars, then you know letting them ever get together again. Uh, would be a disaster. Um, well, thank you for that. Um, so let's turn to the the book at hand. This is um, you've written many books now. Um, this is your your latest. Um, so how did you come up with the idea to write this particular book? Well, there, there are two different uh, uh, triggers to this. One of them had to do with Amazon uh, because uh, one of the anonymous reviewers uh, of my Out of Ashes book, The Big History of 20th Century Europe, that I did a couple, three years ago, uh, said, well, you know, this wasn't a bad book, but what he really wanted to know was how people lived to the 20th century. And I said to myself, oh, well, okay, yes, I didn't do enough with that in the other book, and maybe I should do this. Uh, but then a more serious uh, kind of long-range interest had to do with the many personal stories that Germans told each other after 1945. Uh, it was almost impossible when I was a teenager uh, to grow up and to have a, a Sunday dinner or a, a cafe clutch or something like that without the, con the, the, the topic of World War II, National Socialism, uh, and German suffering to come up in one way or another. And I then decided that this was a set of fascinating stories, and academic historians had really tried to shy away, shy away from it because they did not feel comfortable with the memories of ordinary people. And I thought, okay, I am old enough, I have written enough standard academic books, and now I can do something that I would really enjoy with the assumption that readers would have fun reading it as well. Hmm. Okay, so you, so this book is really a collective, what they would call a collective biography of ordinary Germans. Um, I think you have... Yes. Yeah, uh, you, you and I did, uh, oh, go ahead. I, did, uh, I turned to autobiographies simply because most of the people who were born in the 1920s have passed away by now. Uh, and the ones that are still alive, many of them are no longer really capable of, uh, of conversing about these things and sharing their stories. And so I was looking for a written form, and autobiography was one way of doing it. And originally I had thought that half a dozen people would be enough, uh, mostly people whom I knew personally, like this sponsor that I talked about a little while ago, Gerhard Krupp, but also like Jewish friends like Tom Angris uh, before he passed away. But then I found out when I was trying to do this that uh, their stories only covered some aspects of 20th century Germany. Uh, and if I wanted a, more fu a fuller picture, I had to turn to more of them. And out of that uh, sort of began uh, a small avalanche in which stories led to other stories. And when I started talking to audiences about some of this, people would come from the audience itself and they would say, my mother has and my grandfather, and I think, might you be interested and so on. And so a lot of the material that I got was uh, offered to me. And some of it was in... Uh, in archives, there is a collection by the German writer Walter Kempowski uh, at the Berlin Academy of, uh, of Arts, uh, and there is also a diary archive in Emmendingen in, in Baden, in a small town. And then, of course, there is are the holdings of Leo of the Leo Beck Institute in New York uh, on Jewish history. So there are already collections of this, and then there's a whole sort of series of gray literature of personally paid for publications 
which are not in university libraries either, you know, where people are telling their own children, um, their relatives, and sometimes also the public about their life stories because many of them have feel a need um, not just to talk about themselves as individuals, but to sort of make sure that what they had gone through would never happen again. And that's the clue. That's what makes these stories fascinating uh, and makes them politically and, and historiographically important. Yep. Um, so, I mean, you collected about 50 of these I saw in, in the book. And actually, actually more, actually more. over 80. Over 80. Uh, did you, did you only, did you use all 80? Yes. I mean, some of them arrived fairly late in the process. And so they got only cited in mm. two or three places, mm. but in principle, yes, mm. uh, because all of them had some dimension, which was interesting. Uh, and purposely they are by ordinary people. Mm. There are not very many famous people in it. I try to shy away from it. Helmut Schmidt is not there. Uh, Hel Helmut Kohl is not there. Various other people from the 1920s uh, are not there. And I consciously left them out because we know a lot about those folks already. But we, what we don't know much about is how, how ordinary people, mm. how normal people did this. And in order to keep some control over it, I also picked people that were born in the Weimar Republic. That is from 19, the late 19-teens, 1918, 1919, on to 1933, 1934. Um, because, and there is a sort of intellectual justification for it, because these folks um, were more involved in national socialism as youth before 1939 in the Hitler Youth uh, in the BDM and so on. They were more enthusiastic supporters of the regime than anybody else. And then one of my claims is that they also paid for it more in the Second World War because uh, a tremendous number of the men were killed and the women were suffering uh, saturation bombing and um, some of them fly an expulsion from the east and rape and so on um, and of course the true victims namely the regime opponents like communists and then you know the large number of german jews that did not manage to escape and jews of course from other european countries and so on the real victims suffered as well and then only when they got, you know, out of the war in the early post-war period were they able to begin to put their lives back together if they were still alive. Uh, and, and I do definitely want to ask you some specifics about the, the sections of the book. Um, but first I want to ask, um, this is a, a, a difficult approach, a difficult approach to take to writing a book. Um, so I want to ask what were some of the challenges for you in in writing a collective biography of regular people because you're dealing with you know their personal memoirs their personal letters their journals um and, and those sources can be tricky to work with sure well you know i mean uh you know uh, they are not always factually reliable the problem with that is of course that if they're ordinary people there's not much of a of an archival record on them you know, and so I, I tried a workaround uh, in two different ways. One of them was to look at shared experiences. That is, what did they all have together? And, you know, virtually all of the young men that I dealt with were in the military. And almost all of them were in some were POWs after the war for a while. So these are shared experiences. Um, and at the same time, of course, they are writing decades after the events about what happened to them earlier, and they then develop certain kind of narratives, and these things are called tropes of memory. These are various ways in which memories are being represented to the reader. And, uh, you know, classically, you know, about the war, you know, the, the, the tradition has been heroic stories, you know, 
that is, we are all heroes and so on, okay? Whereas, of course, when you lose a second world war within a generation, uh, then you can't be really heroic about it. <laughs> At best, you can tell survival stories about the war uh, and, and so on, you know. And then you can have success stories after 1945 if you're in West Germany, you know, because, you know, when you go through the economic miracle and your, you know, a career takes off and you, you have a car, you have a house, you have a family, you travel internationally and so on. That's all very nice. Whereas if you're East German, then, of course, towards the end, after four decades, your country falls apart. And so you cannot write about this as success stories anymore either. You can write a kind of, uh, you know, kind of uh, resentful uh, prose about why socialism should have succeeded and didn't. So, you know, there are two different levels of this, and that's what makes it interesting because the, the memory part taps into all of the memory discussions, but it's not the critical academic memory or the high political memory of the Federal Republic, but it's the actual private memory uh, which you get at through these stories. That is what is being handed down in families uh, and in a kind of semi-public realm, which is rather different from uh, the official kind of um, self-critical memory of the country. Sure. Um... Okay, so um, let's take a, a few steps back. In, in the beginning of the book, you talk about um, the generation before the generation you're dealing with. Um, yes. The, um, so can you talk a little bit about how that generation, sort of the generation that grew up in Imperial Germany and the eve of World War I, uh, different than this, this generation that you're working with? Well, I mean, the people from the empire, I try to start there because as grandparents, uh, for the folks that I'm interested in, and as parents, you know, they then transmit culturally what German identity is about in different kind of subsets of Germany, uh, and they are the ones that experience uh, the old, really old ones, you know, experience national unification, that is the rise of a German national state. They experience Bismarck, and they experience rapid economic growth, urbanization, uh, and so on. And so they are, by and large, people, you know, who think of their lives as having been successful. Um, and that gets them uh, shocked during the First World War. Uh, at which time, of course, you know, the war gets lost and the empire uh, dissolves in 1918-1919. Uh, and then sort of a second layer uh, gets added to this, you know, feeling. In German one says, gute alte Zeit for the empire. That is the good old days, uh, which look like that in retrospect, although they were neither good nor old uh, when they were happening, or not nearly as good as they seem in retrospect. And then comes the shock of the First World War, and that's what the parents have to cope with, who are then in charge of these kids during the Weimar Republic. And the surprising thing to me was uh, that the Weimar childhoods uh, are, are remembered as being much more positive than the academic literature uh, on the Weimar Republic makes it. Yeah. So these parents seem to have succeeded to some degree in providing uh, a secure childhood to their to their kids. You know, when I was reading your book, I I was struck by that too. Um, that you you say that almost universally they had a, a sort of a fond um, fond memories of growing up in Weimar. And um, can you elaborate on that? What you found on that? Because um, yeah, I I was surprised by that as well. Well, you know, I mean, uh, first of all, I mean, high politics only impinge on the lives of ordinary people uh, to some degree. And a lot of the history that gets written is written about high politics. So that, you know, there's a discrepancy right there. I mean, it's it's not that what ordinary people do doesn't have an impact on high politics. I mean, at the end of the Weimar Republic, it does, in the rise of the Nazis and so on, in the Great Depression. But, you know, whether there was a social democratic government, uh, you know, 
in Berlin at the time or whether there were bourgeois parties who were in the government and what the center party did or whatever, that really did not, you know, make much difference for a five-year-old, you know, and for many of the parents. So, you know, I think there is also the, the time after, I mean, okay, there's initial chaos, and there's some notes on that. The older part of that cohort talks about uh, the initial chaos still of the long republic, but then there comes the middle period from 23, 24 on to 30, about the Great Depression gets to Germany a year or so after in the United States. Um, so you have a half a decade, which is fairly stable, in which people can have what they then call normal lives. Um, and I think that that made a difference as well. You know, and then, you know, it's also retrospect, and that's the third dimension of it. You know, when you then get into World War II and the various disasters and, and the terrible experiences during the war and the early post-war period and so on, then even Weimar looks good by comparison. Sure. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, let's talk a little bit about how um, this, this cohort the people that you examined um, experienced this, the Nazi seizure of power in 33. Um, they all had sort of different reactions to it. I mean, I know you had men, women, Jews, uh, and so forth. So let's talk about that moment for them and how they remember it. Um, well, the older ones, I mean, you have to be almost about 10 or something like that. Um, you know, do remember... Uh, their parents being excited one way or the other. I mean, you know, the, there were a few um, families or, you know, autobiographies of people who had parents who were early Nazi supporters, you know, in the SR and so on, and they were then, of course, delighted. Uh, and then there were quite a few people also, Catholics and Jews and so on, who had a sense that something bad was about to happen. Uh, so, you know, uh, I mean, one of them says, you know, I didn't, I knew about, you know, politics as much as a fish knows about flying <laughs> and so on. So, I mean, you know, they don't, they don't really, you know, understand it. You know, they're just beginning to sort of see that there are street battles, that, you know, there's a depression on, that there are bread lines and stuff like that. These sorts of things begin to make an imp impact on them. And then, you know, the world changes and the Nazis come to power, you know, um, and, and they register it. Many of them register it, but, you know, they, they don't understand the import of it. Yeah, you, you talk a little bit about in, in the third chapter of the book about how they notice that when their school changes, um, yes. that the, the teachers are different. The lessons are a little different. Um, and, and so maybe I want to talk about this a little bit, the, the subtle things, the little things that they notice change. Um, school being maybe the most prominent example. Um, yeah, sure. Well, I mean, you know, because I mean, most of them do get, you know, are old enough to get schooled uh, in the early to mid part um, of the peaceful years of the Third Reich, if there are such things. Uh, and, uh, you know, there then the climate changes. You know, if you're Jewish, you begin to be picked off and you're beginning to be shunted aside and your relations with your friends and so on begin to go under uh, because, you know, social prejudices being what they are and political pressures and families then didn't want their kids to be, you know, running around with, uh, with their Jewish friends anymore. So, I mean, that makes a difference. Uh, and, you know, obviously the content of teaching makes a difference because, you know, you have a kind of heroic, Germanic, uh, ethnic, folkish kind of presentation of history. You have a new biology that does a lot about race and inheritance uh, and and so on and so forth. And you have teachers, some of which suddenly disappear if they are really left-wing opponents of the regime, then you know many of them get fired or they get retired early or whatever. Uh, and so the atmosphere changes and Nazis then become principals. 
and they have flag, uh, you know, raising ceremonies and, you know, Nazi holidays and Nazi songs and music and so on, you know, uh, you know, the SR hymn and various other ones. So that's one sort of organized uh, dimension. The other one is, of course, the youth culture dimension, because the Hitler Youth gradually absorbs uh, basically all competing organizations, uh, and um, and it kicks out Jewish members out of existing organizations. They are then forced to create their own uh, youth groups and so on, as long as they were allowed to do that uh, in the Third Reich. Uh, and you know the Hitler Youth then tries to shape the future of Germany politically, uh, and you know the young men do uh, war games, you know Geländespiele, uh, and so on, and the young women, you know, do homemaking kind of stuff, uh, and you know it's a backsliding to some of the new women kind of. Uh, advances of the Weimar Republic. Um, so, you know, it's the school and it's the youth subculture uh, who are the two big pushing elements. And the third dimension of this is then private spaces, some of which still continue to exist. And the kids who get uh, annoyed by all the uniform wearing and uh, oaths to various kinds of Nazi leaders or whatever, you know, they then withdraw into into their private kind of affairs. Uh, and, you know, and that, of course, also, um, you know, indirectly stabilizes the system. And there's a little bit of youth resistance, but it's really rather small in terms of total numbers and impact. Um, so out of the out of the biographies that you read, did did was there a lot of writing about talking about writing about the Hitler their time in the Hitler Youth, or was that something they tried to shy away from? No, no. I mean, you know, I mean, when they're writing, they're of course in in what I've called later on a stance of diachronic disbelief. Uh, namely, you know, they you know years later they can't believe what kind of idiots they were when they were teenagers. Um, that is, I mean, they are engaging it, and, and and the difficulty that they have is, of course, a little bit like East Germans writing as well. You know, there is a political system that was a total disaster and is morally discredited, and yet when they were young, they had a good time in it. That is, many of them liked hiking and camping and, uh, you know, Lagerfeuer and, uh, and so on. You know, hmm. and singing singing folk songs and stuff, you know, and being away from home and out of the control of their parents. And, you know, from the youth movement, the sort of phrase, youth leads youth, you know, in contrast to American Boy Scouts. I always think of these 45 or 50-year-old men with knobbly knees and hairy legs, <laughs> you know, running for the 13, 14-year-olds. Whereas when I was a Boy Scout leader in Germany, you know, I was 12, and I had a group of 10-year-olds, you know, and we went hitchhiking a couple hundred miles and stuff. Oh, wow. So, you, know, you know, and so that gives you a feeling of freedom, you know. Um, was the experience, did you notice any different for girls as opposed to boys? Was there a, a, a big gap in, in sort of how they felt about um, these changes and, and both in school and in youth, or no, were they, were they more or less consistent? No, I think they're consistent. I think gender uh, made, if anything, uh, a difference in the kind of gushing admiration of Hitler. I mean, the boys would be more sort of, you know, after military and, you know, flying and uh, motorcycles mm. and whatever, okay. Whereas, you know, the girls were just, you know, blown away hmm. by, you know, the Fuhrer as a figure, you know, no, and I mean, you know, they did in the, in the BDM, they did slightly different things during the Heimabend, I mean, you know, they did, they did more things that were considered to be female, they did, they did more um, sort of ethnographic stuff, you know, telling, you know, fairy tales and uh, 
doing handicraft and, and stuff like that, whereas the boys were more likely to be rolling around in the dirt and beating on each other. Right. Sure, but no, no real attitude differences, no real... No, no. I mean, just being female didn't mean that they were better people. No. <laughs> no, I was just... Well, you know, that's controversial, but... Mm. I'll let it stand. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so let's 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 move up towards the war, and uh, and the end of the war, um, and and talk a little bit about how they they experienced the war. Uh, you you did allude to it a little bit in your introduction, and then sort of the immediate aftermath. Yeah, I mean, for the young, I mean, I I, I split the war into three different chapters. Uh, young, the experiences of young men were different from the experiences of young women, and they were different, again, from the experiences of true victims of the system. So there had to be three different chapters. But they are interwoven, of course, because they're physically interconnected when these things are going on. And the young men, to surprising degrees, uh, were in the war and supported the war effort uh, because even the ones that were not rabid Nazis did not want to be left out. They had the sense that there was something grand going on. The future of Germany was going to be decided and the defeat of the First World War was going to be reversed and so on. They were going to be the real uh, you know, hot shots of Europe. And then, you know, with the surprising victories over Poland and Scandinavia and France and so on, then, you know, uh, winning is an intoxicating feeling. And so, you know, even those people who might have thought of the Nazis as plebeian and kind of crude and so on, you know, then, you know, supported the military. And uh, some of them also then became officers on the battlefield. You know, that is, you know, once the war went on and, you know, on the level of second lieutenants, I mean, that's the rank of, that gets most heavily killed, you know, in the military sergeants and lieutenants, you know, because they're supposed to be out in front, you know. And then, you know, the stories change, you know, when the war becomes interminable and uh, when uh, Hitler attacks the Soviet Union and then when Hitler declares war on the United States uh, and so on, then suddenly, you know, the, the sort of heroic part and the fun and game part of the war disappears uh, and they begin to have to write about one defeat after another and especially the stories from the Eastern Front uh, are just devastating uh, because you know, they're still believing in some ways that they're superior to Slavs and yet these Slavs keep beating them one battle after another I mean certainly after 42 um, that goes on, you know. And, you know, then if we switch to the women, there's all this home front stuff, you know, in which they're doing, you know, including writing letters to unknown members of the military. You know, dear Fritz, you know, you do not know who I am, but, you know, I am a girl in high school and I think you're doing great things and stuff, okay? So this is all moral support and physical support. Uh, as well, knitting and, you know, uh, and so on, and collecting uh, recyclable materials and training, you know, against bombing attacks. But then, you know, similarly, you know, maybe even some time delay, somewhat later, the young women are finding out, you know, when Hitler or Goering promises that no, no Allied plane, no British plane will ever bomb a German city, and then, of course, they show up by the hundreds or thousands, you know, and they start laying waste in our German towns and stuff, you know, then you have all the fears in the bombing cellars, uh, you know, uh, and those sorts of things. And then if you're in the East, you know, it's mostly a female experience that is flight uh, in front of the Red Army and then uh, mass rape, hundreds of thousands, if not a couple million figures are still somewhat in dispute there. You know, so you have female experiences, you know, that are then also disillusioning at the end. You know, the men are disillusioned, they can't protect their women, the women are disillusioned because, you know, this grand adventure, their hallowed Führer and stuff, you know, is no longer there, commit suicide, you know, and so on, and is not able to, to protect them anymore either. So there's a female version of the war experience. You know, and then, of course, you know, 
communists and Jews were in the same camps. And this is also perhaps somewhat controversial because usually the literature, you know, there is a Holocaust literature that doesn't really relate very much to what goes on in the majority German population, in the non-Jewish German population, you know. And then there is a kind of communist resistance literature that is not connected either to the Jewish scholarship or is connected, you know, much to the regular kind of population. And I put them together into the same chapter with, you know, much more attention, of course, to the Jewish part because uh, the communist underground for the young people is really not last very long because, like Honecker, they then get caught and if they're lucky, they survive, but many of them get killed by the SS and the Gestapo. And then we have, you know, the stories of of unbecoming Germans, that is, you know, especially those secularized members of the Jewish community, you know, who had no religious connection anymore to their forebears, you know, and who thought of themselves as completely as Germans, like Peter Gay's uh, parents and so on, or Fritz Stern's parents. Uh, and, you know, their particular trajectory, if they were lucky, they emigrate. If they're not lucky, they get caught up uh, in the Nazi concentration camps. And we have amazing survival stories, like from Lisa Ganor, uh, Anna Frankel, um, who is a Ukrainian girl, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, who decides to go uh, and try to be a Christian Ukrainian doing or a service in Germany in order to survive and so on. And she ends up at an SS uh, uh, estate and then eventually gets caught and gets into Auschwitz and still has to survive uh, death marches at the end and so on. So there's a separate chapter on that that then still asks questions about, you know, what's the relationship between these experiences to experiences of non-Jewish Germans and so on. You know, so, you know, the war, you know, the war is what breaks these lives. That's where the title comes from. Um, yeah, I was, pieces, I was going to ask how you got the title. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's that's why, you know, and there's hardly a life in, in, in 20th century Germany in that age cohort that is not broken in some fashion or other. You know, it's broken through the through the war experience. That is through serving at the front, mass murder, mass death. You know, it's broken through the suffering on the home front, and flight and expulsion for over 10 million Germans. Uh, you know, and then of course by the victims of the perpetrators and so on. Then it's broken through their mass extermination uh, and bear survival and survivors killed and so on. So, I mean, my, my sense is that hardly anyone escapes these experiences without being fundamentally changed. changed. Um, so the war ends, and now we're in a new period. Um, sort of the Cold War is setting in, um, Germany is divided. Um, so let, let's talk about the different experiences the Germans in your book have in the East, and then in the West, and then sort of how it all comes together at the end with with reunification. But we'll we'll start with the we'll start with the East, and then and then okay. the West. Okay. Well, let me actually start with post-war, because there's a separate chapter on post-war, because that's the hinge around which these lives turn. You know, it's the experiences of the Second World War that shock them, that make them think about what they can do, but it is. But most of the German problems of survival really come uh, in the last half year of the war. I mean, Aachen was liberated in October 44, but Allied occupation begins, or liberation begins uh, in January, February, March 45. Okay, and as Projat, who is a Bavaria product, project of the Institute for Zeitgeschichte, already pointed out decades ago, until about 48, and so on, is the period from late 44 to 48 is the period in which the Germans actually suffer themselves. So this is the period which they have to survive, and this is the period where they have to construct new lives, and with some with some learning, but also some obduracy and so on, they somehow 
get through it. And this is the period in which, and there we are at your question, uh, they also have to choose east or west because initially the border is still somewhat porous. Only in the early 50s and so on does it really begin, become fortified and so controlled that you can't get across it anymore. Uh, and, you know, so you have to figure out, you know, it has to do with family, it has to do with background, it has to do with straight chance where you end up as a refugee. Uh, it has to do also to some degree with ideology and with treatment. If you are a communist in the West and you feel discriminated against, you go East and a half a million people did that. But if you are... Uh, somebody who is a middle-class person, a churchgoer, a business person, you know, an academic, a professional and stuff like this, over three million went from the east to the west. So you have this choice. You have two different German futures competing with each other for being the better Germany and giving uh, better life chances. Some of the writers like Bert Brecht and Anna Segers and stuff went east, but eventually some of the other ones like philosophers like Ernst Bloch or, or Meyer, the Germanist and stuff like this, go west because they can't stand the new dictatorship in the east. And so we have two uh, counter stories. The eastern, well, let me start with the western story. It's more a story of private lives and of reconstituting private lives in a kind of apolitical sense. Only a minority gets involved in democratization, although a lot of the postal literature is about that. <laughs> the majority of the population was just happy to be able to get on, to, to get married, to have children, to you know, have a decent apartment, to have vacations and whatever. And my argument is that these private lives make it possible for democracy to take root because democracy does not give them war, it does not give them depression, it does not give them upheaval and so on and suffering, but it rather gives them a better life. And in spite of the fact that there are more former Nazis involved in the Federal Republic in you know high places like Felbinger and Klopke and, and whatnot, and in the East, of course, you have an ideologically more attractive project, at least for intellectuals and so on, that says we are going to end up, uh, we're going to end all suffering, we're going to end up, uh, end exploitation, we're going to end war, we're going to really build a better country, uh, and so on. But, you know, even the people who were for it, you know, sort of had to learn to also live with disbelief on that one because it was clear that the Red Army was not uh, schmoozy, friendly, and so on. But, you know, the kind of uh, treatment, you know, of Germans during uh, the uh, Soviet victory, you know, left a deep scar on the relationship. Uh, and that Stalinist Russia was not really a place that many people wanted to be in. Uh, so you have this great project of a better Germany, but you have a lot of kind of uh, counterintuitive experiences in a new, what turns into a new communist dictatorship. So, you know, they start with more promise and end up worse, and the Federal Republic starts with more problems of post-Nazi legacies and stuff like this, and then turns out to be better. Uh, and, you know, so you have first the Federal Republic chapter, then the East German chapter that leads into the collapse of communism and the peaceful revolution, which then leads into a conclusion that reflects a little bit about the way in which these folks think about their lives and at the same time think about German history, which is intimately you know, intertwined with their own personal existence. And, and now your book makes the claim that through these experiences, this century, this 20th century experiences, um, it has allowed Germany today to be what it is, um, sort of the, the centerpiece of the European Union, liberalism, um, environmentalism, all, all of these things. Um, is, is that a correct assessment of? 
Yes, and uh, I will be criticized for it, and uh, Jonathan Steinberg has already done that, um, you know, as being too optimistic. But, you know, I keep thinking about my own early childhood, you know, when at the end of the war, when people were, you know, harried and desperate and, you know, the men were wearing pieces of old uniforms and and so on, and people were just trying to get through starvation and uh, and cold and stuff like this. And then if I look at, you know, what goes on right now, uh, it is a different country. It has changed. And it isn't just that uh, it has undergone the changes that all other Western countries have undergone. It's also because people have had to confront what they did uh, in the 1930s and early 1940s. And yes, not everybody has gotten it. Uh, the new right-wing party, IFD, you know, has, uh, you know, neo-Nazi overtones, and I am worried about that, and so on. But the vast majority uh, of Germans uh, have understood that the Holocaust is their responsibility primarily, uh, and that the Second World War is certainly something uh, which was conducted in the name of Germany by the Nazi leadership, uh, in that many of their parents were involved in it, and so on and so forth. And you have a, a culture of public contrition in this country, which may be ritualistic, and I understand those colleagues who sort of find it uh, annoying and cloying and so on, but I would much rather have that than uh, a culture like the Soviet Union, which denies the Gulag and which celebrates the great fatherland's war and makes Stalin into a new culture hero. I mean, you know, the difference is amazing. So I think on balance, you know, even if you compare the German story with the other fascist countries like uh, uh, like Italy, I mean, the Italians kind of got away in the summer of 43 by switching sides. And so, you know, they did not have to confront Mussolini to the same degree. I won't even talk about the Austrians, who were made into the first victim of the Nazis by Allied Fiat, and they could have Kurt Waldheim, you know, as you know, head of the UN, you know, uh, where it turns out that he was a Wehrmacht officer, probably involved in atrocities and stuff. So you know, and then let's go to the Japanese. I mean, one of the times that I was visiting there, you know, in the morning at seven o'clock, you know. Uh, jet lag notwithstanding, there was a, um, you know, a vehicle with a loudspeaker outside of the hotel playing uh, World War II songs. It was an army type, you know, a camouflage vehicle and stuff. Okay. And the Japanese prime minister still has great difficulty apologizing to the comfort women of Korea uh, or whatever. So, I mean, you know, it's a question of what are the standards? I mean, certainly, uh, you know, not all Germans have learned the right things, and certainly, um, you know, ritualistic uh, contrition is not as good as genuine uh, sort of saying sorry and so on. But it is a heck of a lot better than what else is going on in comparable countries. Um, is there going to be a German version, a German translation of the book? Yes, uh, that's what I'm doing right now. I have an, ex an excellent translator, and it's coming out in uh, uh, in September, just in time for the German Historica Talk and the Frankfurt Book Fair. Yeah. Okay, uh, interesting. I was I was curious about that. Um, so before we 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 wrap up with the book, um, I would like for you to tell the people listening um, just maybe one thing else they, you would really like them to get out of the book when they read it? Well, I would like them to enjoy the stories because many of them are fascinated, mm. fascinating and uh, sort of accept that Germans were not just ogres but were people like they themselves 
and that they need to think about the vulnerability of other democracies to various forms of populist propaganda. So instead of, you know, getting a sense of superiority, we are all better than those damn Germans. I want them to have some empathy and a sort of deeper understanding uh, of what can go wrong if things conspire and if people are not defending uh, freedom, human rights, social equality, and so on. Mm. Um, good. I think, I think that in this way, the book is extremely timely. Um, and I would definitely encourage everybody listening to go out and get it and uh, and read it. it. The stories are very fascinating, um, and it's, it's it's a wonderful book. Um, so it's been it's been it's been a little while now. I've taken up a lot of your time. Um, but before I, I let you go, um, I know you just said that you're having the book translated. But are you uh, do you have any other current scholarly projects you're working on? I haven't quite decided between two different. <laughs> possible projects. One of them would be to write an autobiography myself, because not every historian has a transatlantic background and has had the kinds of experiences that I've had. But uh, more seriously, uh, I'm thinking about a book on the crisis of the West uh, in order to reflect on the last 30 years on what has gone wrong from the triumphalism of 1990 to the political disasters of the present, Brexit in Europe, and the current American administration. Uh, those sorts of things frighten me, and I want to try to reflect on what has happened, why it has happened, uh, and how we can fight against it. Um, well, no pressure to write those books, um, but if you do ha if you do, when you do finish them, I would love to have you back uh, to talk about them. I want to thank you again for being on the show today um, I really enjoyed talking to you I'm, I'm sure the listeners will enjoy listening and I also want to thank everybody for listening today and we will see you all next time <laughs>